Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. It often seems that climate scientists are running out of ways to warn us. Last month, a remarkably sober UN report declared that we are way behind our climate goals. The window for action is just tiny at this point. Even best-case scenarios show that global temperatures will shoot through the limits we've set ourselves. And that can sound a bit hopeless. The question at this point is whether we can dramatically reduce carbon emissions to have some hope in the future of bringing the temperatures that have risen back down later. And if we don't, climate disasters will become so extreme that humanity will not be able to adapt. It's not all bleak. Here in America, the Biden administration has introduced landmark legislation since coming to office. The Inflation Reduction Act is aimed at cutting carbon emissions and forwarding America's climate goals. As you'll hear ahead, it's not without controversy. Europe has called America protectionist because many of its policies are essentially made in America restrictions. But it's what we have. The question is whether it's enough whether the rest of the world can join in, and most of all, where is the money, money, money? It always begins and ends there, doesn't it? This week, for the third time in three years, I sat down with John Kerry ahead of FP's annual climate summit. Kerry is U.S. President Joe Biden's special envoy for climate. He served for four years as America's 68th Secretary of State, and he chose to come back into government because he cares so much about the future of this planet. As always, FP subscribers get to send in their questions, which I sometimes ask on their behalf. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com live. For now, here's John Kerry. Welcome back to FP Live. Ravi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be with you. Likewise. Um, since we last spoke, the Biden administration signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. It's a landmark act, I should say, America's largest investment in climate change. It's supposed to speed up the country's clean energy transition. It's been a few months now. So tell us, is the IRA working? What positive changes are you seeing? Thanks, Ravi, and thank you for focusing in on this. And I certainly uh, agreed with your introduction about the challenge of getting people that heed the warnings um, the IRA is working on overdrive, I would say, having skipped through a bunch of gears. I'm surprised pleasantly by the degree to which it's having an impact on a global basis. In fact, you know, some of our friends in various parts of the world see concern in the level of its success, but we've counseled them do the same thing, move. This is part of the acceleration that the scientists have called for and that the situation calls for. So, you know, just in the past uh, month, 
uh, a couple of announcements have been made about a $27 billion uh, greenhouse gas reduction fund that's going out to help with respect to uh, our communities. Uh, governors and mayors are going to be engaged in this transition and already are. Uh, in addition, there's about $100 million that's been put into uh, making sure that the just component of a just transition is in fact really being paid attention to. And that will go to American communities in order to help uh, make things happen. But perhaps most importantly of all, the tax credit component. Everybody knows that the Treasury Department is now working through the details on the rules by which that will work. But those tax credits are having a profound impact. It's the first time we have about a 10-year horizon on tax credits for investment and also tax credits for production. And, and this is going to really start to address, already is, the supply chain. I understand there are a whole bunch of battery startups, uh, some additional solar, wind, and that's exactly what the president wanted and what we wanted from this legislation. So I'm very excited about it, but I want to say my, we're, we're mindful all the time, and this is a central part of my job, we can't do this alone. Every country in the world that is an emitter of gases has got to step up. This is a global effort that we have to make. No one country mm. can solve this problem. We desperately need more funding, but we are beginning to see very exciting things happen. And the rate of transition, transformation has clearly picked up around the world. Republicans in the US seem hell-bent on chipping away at some provisions uh, of the IRA. Is this just partisanship? Do they have a chance at actually repealing it? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't count the votes day to day right now. Uh, and and um, I'm moving around fast enough that I'm not sure of the latest temperature of the Senate or the House. But I, I really think they're making a mistake uh, for the United States of America, for our country and the world and children and grandchildren not to be more seized by this issue. It should not be partisan. There is nothing involved in any decision that we are making that remotely resembles politics or uh, ideology or liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat. Everything we're doing is really based on uh, decisions and warnings coming from the top level of our scientific community around the world. Scientists are driving this. Mathematics and physics are driving this. And we understand exactly what now years, 35, 40 years of intensive modeling has given us a much greater ability to understand the implications of choices we make and don't make. And so we need to accelerate our efforts to affect this transition to clean energy. And we're seeing it happen in remarkable ways. Big companies, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, the German car industry, I have made decisions that already have spent billions of dollars retooling their factories. They are now building and, and selling at a remarkable rate electric vehicles and zero emission vehicles. And I just came from the G7 meeting in Japan where we agreed, the G7, seven of the largest economies of the world, that we are targeting 50% of the sales of vehicles by 2030 must be zero emissions vehicles. That's a remarkable statement by seven big uh, mm -hmm. uh, industrial countries. So 
things are happening. They're just not happening fast enough yet, Robbie. And we're continuing to try to do the diplomacy that brings more people to the table for a very important COP that will take place in Dubai in December. And you have a lot of hurdles. I mean, you mentioned at the top with the IRA that not everyone is happy about it. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, the IRA has angered, uh, I think, many of your allies in Europe uh, and in Asia. A frequent criticism is that the bill offers unfair advantages to American companies, that it threatens European jobs and industries, and that it's essentially part of America becoming more protectionist. I should also add numerous economists, uh, Adam Posen in this magazine, Larry Summers on this program, have made the case that while the IRA might be well-meaning, and it is, it represents bad economics. Is that where we are, that we, to get anything done on climate change, we have to resort to protectionism? No, we don't. And I think that where there are individual uh, measures within the IRA that may have, uh, you know, annoyed people a little bit because of uh, their focus on content or their focus on, you know, location for production and so forth. The fact is we're working those differences out with our friends, with Canada, where President Biden just had a very successful meeting in Canada with Justin Trudeau, with our friends in Europe, where we've had a number of tweaks that have already been made. And my, my conversations with our allies and friends involved uh, on this issue and other security issues is that uh, they also get the bigger part of the message, which is we've got to put more money on the table in order to, uh, in some cases, subsidize a transition that otherwise may not happen, but that we must effect in order to make our countries more secure. And an ancillary benefit, obviously, to the security issue, it's not just energy security. It's security that comes from avoiding conflicts in various places, not fighting over water, not seeing millions of refugees and migrants moving to intensify what is already a major challenge in terms of international relationships. So I see that happening. I see people really focusing in on the realities here. The science tells us that if we don't uh, affect this transition, we will have trillions of dollars wrapped up in responding to the crisis. And you could have interruptions in food production in Africa and various other places. You could have a huge challenge to the adequacy of water supplies for people around the world. Look at what happened with Lake Mead, Lake Powell last summer and the Colorado River. Look at what happened to the Rhine River. Where it was down so, to Secretary Kerry, uh, just to jump in there, um, it's in, one can't disagree with you on 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 the sum of what you're saying, but but the the critique from economists that the IRA essentially represents bad economics, that it's a climate change bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. It's couching much of uh, what are well-meaning initiatives, but couching it in job creation or industrial policy or reducing inflation. Um, and that's where it's promising things that it's not actually going to do in the cleanest sense. I mean, economic history shows that you create jobs and you foster innovation by opening up markets, not by shutting them down. We're not, we're not shutting them down. In fact, we, we anticipate that the IRA will in fact open up markets. It's gonna open up whole new supply chains 
around the world. The world is not well served by having the major supply of critical minerals and in the end, solar panels and or wind turbines coming from one country. Uh, that is not healthy for anybody. And so you have to find a way to break that. I mean, remember, we had a solar industry 15, 20 years ago. So did Germany. And what happened to that? China dumped massive amounts of solar panels into the marketplace, underpriced, and they basically took that market away and people didn't pay that much attention to it, unfortunately. As some people are not paying enough attention to the challenge of the climate crisis right now. So we have no choice but to try to provide incentives to bring capital to certain places. You can't order private capital to go do this or that. And that's not how America works. And nobody's suggesting we should be doing that. So we have always provided incentives. Go back and look at the, uh, at the oil and gas uh, exploration incentives, some of which are still there after 50 and 60 years. Um, we provided incentives on any number of different things where we need to we need to stimulate the market with a demand signal. Uh, that's part of what we're doing in this area. But let me give you a couple of examples. We've created this entity called the First Movers Coalition. There are about 65 major corporations, US corporations and others around the world, but corporations like Apple and Microsoft and Google and Cisco, and you run the list, FedEx and Ford Motor Company and others, they have decided they're going to send a demand signal. They're concerned enough about this, that they are now buying green products, even though those products aren't in the open marketplace that readily available. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Salesforce, Apple, uh, Boeing, United Airlines, Delta are have agreed that they're going to they're going to buy five percent of the fuel they use in their operations will be sustainable aviation fuel, so that people can go out and make it and create a market, and they know there's a buyer there. On on cement, Lafarge Holson, largest cement dealer in the world, is now committed that they're going to make green cement, and they are. Uh, you have an example of uh, Ford and General Motors and Volvo and other companies have joined together. Say, ten percent of the steel we buy is going to be green steel. And so we have a number of plants now that are producing green steel and people are showing that we have to make this change faster. That's a remarkable thing. The private sector paying a premium called the green premium in order to affect this transition. So serious people, Ravi, serious people who listen to the science, who read, who understand the very simple connection of pollution that goes up into the atmosphere, pollution that comes from how we heat our homes, how we burn our fuel, that pollution is vastly changing life on this planet and is a risk to all of our security. Those leaders are stepping up. We need our elected leaders also to step up and help us affect this transition. And inflation has been coming down. Inflation was caused not just by, uh, you know, I mean, a whole bunch of things. We had a COVID legislation because we have to deal with COVID. We have to keep the economy moving. Mm. We provided help to people who otherwise could have been completely stranded. I think people should be proud of what we've done and at the same time developed uh, the technology of vaccines, which has made a world of difference sure. to the world. Sure. So I, I don't agree that that policy is dragging us down. I think it is part of what has ignited our economy and will continue to for some time. 
Well, I genuinely hope you're right. And I'm sure everyone listening uh, to this uh, will agree on that as well. We're rooting for you to succeed. I want to focus on China. Uh, the last time you came on this program, you said that President Xi Jinping was deeply invested in the climate issue and that uh, their climate envoy, Xi Shenhua, was working closely with you on this issue. But since you were last here about a year ago, the relationship between the U.S. and China has experienced new lows. Undersecretary for Defense Colin Call was just on this program earlier this week, and he said that Beijing doesn't even pick up the phone uh, when Washington calls and is largely ignoring U.S. outreach. How are you seeing this play out on climate cooperation? Well, President Biden and President Xi agreed in one of their first conversations that this is a crisis globally and that China and the United States need to play a, a role in order to address it. And they agreed that they would try to keep the issues separate from the many other issues of concern between us. And there are issues of great concern between us, ranging from you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and, and North Korea and nuclear weapons and cyber and access to the marketplace and theft of, of renewal. I mean, you can run a long list here. But climate is not a bilateral issue. Climate is a universal issue. It is a global threat. And the leaders agreed that they were going to try and keep it separate. Now, for the most part, for the first year and a half or so, that happened. We kept it separate. But then the tensions got great enough, and particularly with the trip to Taiwan, they suspended our communication, and things got into a tougher place. Now, however, I, I think we're back in a place where we may be able to turn the corner. And just a few days ago, I had a long session with my counterpart, Shia Genois, uh, a, a, a virtual conversation. Uh, he, they invited me to come to China, invited me to engage in, in uh, the discussions that they believe we need to be helpful. And my hope is, and it's a hope, not a reality yet, but my hope is that out of these discussions, we can get back to where we were two years ago, because we must be able to cooperate together but on this issue, certainly. And uh, President Biden and, and the team have authorized me to continue to pursue uh, those efforts because they should be separate from everything else. Obviously, um, there are tensions, but you have to keep the channels of communication open. It's vital that we are engaged. Uh, I think, uh, obviously, Secretary Blinken was poised to go over and, and have meetings, and that got interrupted by the balloons. But hopefully, uh, I know everybody is hoping we can get to a place where calming things down and really engaging. Do you and Xi Xinhua have uh, an open line of communication? So when, when tensions emerge, are you still able to communicate? We have been communicating uh, most recently. He was sick. He had a very, uh, I think, something of a stroke or so. And so for a month and a half or so, he'd been out. But we had very good communications before that. Yes, this year in January, February, we had uh, virtual meetings and had agreed to meet. And we're now still in agreement to meet. Now, the proof will be in the pudding. It doesn't come from a meeting. It's not going to come from saying we're going to talk. It's going to come from an actual uh, understanding about what has to be done together. China is the largest emitter of pollution in the world, of greenhouse gas pollution. It is uh, the second largest economy in the world uh, and has many coal fired power plants and is bringing more online. So it's a concern to the whole world. 
And I think everybody is hoping that we can uh, turn that around and work together on the things we agreed to work on in Glasgow, by the way. We agreed to work together on methane reduction, uh, where we could be helpful to each other. We agreed to work on uh, accelerating the transition away from coal and into renewables. And China is doing a huge amount of deploying of renewables right now, more than us, I might add. And thirdly, uh, we agreed to work on deforestation, which is mm. responsible for about 20% of all the world's emissions. So if we can get back to that and we'll know better in the next weeks and months, uh, we could make progress that would be important for everybody on the planet. Indeed. Just one last beat on China. Um, you're essentially saying that Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan you know, ended up hurting uh, climate cooperation between the U.S. and China and therefore the world's climate efforts. Given that that's the case, uh, are you able to, on the American side, draw some lines about things America should and shouldn't do vis-a-vis -vis China? Um, well, first of all, I didn't mention Nancy Pelosi. I said the trip to Taiwan, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, put this in any place other than to say that the result of that was, everybody knows it, that China suspended everything, by the way, not just climate, they suspended sure. all our military cooperation and everything else. So I'm just stating the fact that we got interrupted. Uh, now we're back in a place where uh, we are hopefully able to move forward, but it's purely speculative at this point. Hmm. We actually have to make something happen. And I, I'm not gonna continue a long process of chit chat for the sake of having chit chat. Uh, there has to be progress. And we have to really try to turn this around because we're responsible together for 40% of the greenhouse gas pollution on the planet. Uh, that has extraordinary impact. And if hmm. the two of us aren't moving, Believe me, a lot of other people aren't going to take it that seriously. You're listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, so sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Let's get to COP28 and the road uh, to that summit later this year. Um, the Biden administration signed on to the loss and damage fund agreed to at last year's COP meetings in Sharm el-Sheikh, COP27. But the fund so far, um, I think, is being described as an empty bucket. What can be done to allocate more money for it? Well, we supported the notion that there needs to be a recognition of a, of a simple reality. There are damages and there are losses in the planet. And all you have to do is talk to one of the vulnerable countries, talk to an island state nation uh, and their leadership who tell you that they're contemplating where they're gonna move to. So they may lose their, their home. Uh, and they are seeing damages now as a consequence of the greater intensity of the storms, which comes from the warming of the ocean, which comes from the massive amount of heat because 90% of all the heating of the planet goes into the ocean. So there's a direct linkage there. And that is indisputable. So we have to figure out what are we going to do about this fact that the way we have been powering our societies in the developed world is having a profound negative impact on ourselves as well as other people in the world. 
Now, we're not, we, we, we're not accepting some kind of liability because this is a global thing, which everybody has, I mean, you know, anybody burning coal is contributing to that today. So, but what we need to do is end it, is turn it around and help those folks who need the help the most. You know, you look at 48 sub-Saharan African countries. Together, those countries are 0.55% of all the emissions on the planet. You look at the 20 largest economies of the world, including us and China and India and Russia and so forth, we are responsible for, 70, for 76 plus percent of all the emissions. So it's a simple reality that we've got to deal with the impact of that choice that's been made since the 19th century. But, but given Secretary Kerry, given the numbers you cite, um, is there some way then to make it a legal obligation um, I, for countries to contribute to a loss and damage fund? I don't see it happening in, in, in that way. I think the way to have it happen so it's not contentious, so it's doable, is to raise the amount of, uh, of money available from the developed world and from anybody ready and capable of putting in some funds, by the way, because it's that big a challenge, to help people to be able to adjust, to be able to build re resilience into their economy, to be able to adapt there are certain adaptation things that we're working on now. And there are some very effective ways we could be putting a certain amount of funding in a non-compensatory slash non-punitive way, because that's the best way to ignite local domestic politics that winds up pushing back and destroying your ability to do it. But we have to do it in a sensible way. And I think that there are ways where there's a committee that's been formed under the last Sharm el-Sheikh cop that is charged with responsibility for figuring out what the various options might be, how could we come at this? And the charge for everybody is to try to come up with a structure, not necessarily all the money, but with a structure and mechanism by which the money is going to be produced in order to help those other countries. And believe me, we're gonna be helping other countries one way or the other. If we don't do these things, we're going to have massive migration on the planet. Already last year, Mother Nature has been sending us very powerful messages. In Arctic, it was 70 degrees Fahrenheit above normal last summer. In the Antarctic, it was 100 degrees above normal. And the melting and destabilization of the ice that is taking place is obvious at the naked eye. And scientists are warning us of the impact of that on global climate crisis and so forth. You can see those kinds of things all around the world where there are impacts. Mm. Uh, and so I believe that uh, we will hopefully be able to come to a reasonable mechanism by which this can happen going forward where people don't feel singled out uh, for, for responsibility, but they're willfully and, and readily joining into a global effort to do what is fair and just and I think so we let me do. let me push you on that a little bit secretary Kerry if I may and this is also a good moment for me to take some subscriber questions uh they're writing in from all over the world uh one of them Gargi Ghosh who's the president of global policy at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation she wrote in to ask um essentially pushing you on this point how 
should high-income countries and the international finance system approach finance adaptation work in lower-income and vulnerable countries? Well, we need to do it. And we, we did agree, uh, two years ago, we agreed that we would double the amount of money uh, that would be allocated towards adaptation, up to 40% now of all our funds that are raised on this global basis. Uh, and we need to this year make sure we hit the 100 billion that has been promised by the developed world. That has to happen. Uh, I think it's imperative. And, and how, do we go, how do we go from the promise to delivery? Well, that we can do. We have the mechanisms for delivery. We haven't had all the funds necessary to be able to deliver them. And, and that's uh, frankly just wrong. I mean, we, the, the developed world has a responsibility to step up. There's a growing anger among nations, which I completely understand and everybody ought to understand, which comes from promises that have not been kept and uh, promises broken. And, and people are tired of hearing, oh, we're gonna do this or we're gonna try and produce this. They wanna see it. They wanna see it happen and they deserve to see it happen. And this is something that came out of the Paris Agreement and I think we can fulfill that this year. But we have to do a lot more than that. We have to deploy trillions of dollars. According to the UN finance report and other reports, we're investing about $1.4 trillion into this transition. We're supposed to be in order to actually keep the Earth's temperature increase at 1.5 degrees. That's our coal. That's sort of the North Star. Try to hold on, keep 1.5 degrees alive. And, and we're right on the border of that. But to do it, we need to have about four and a half trillion per year for the next 30 years invested in the new technologies, the deployment of those technologies, the helping of countries to leapfrog the mistakes made by uh, folks in the past. Now, I think we can do that. I believe we can get there, but, and we're working on the mechanisms to get there. Number one, multilateral development bank reform. It began uh, this at the spring meetings, those last two weeks, with new mechanisms for looking at how we're going to deploy capital. But we have to do a lot more between now and the fall meeting when we can really set up an ability to go to Dubai with a real mechanism in place that can provide funding. Secondly, the voluntary carbon markets. That's a way we are convinced with good environmental guidelines and guardrails, with, with uh, prohibition and capacity, with, with a sufficient level of accountability and transparency so that people can't cheat the system, uh, we are going to be able to provide concessionary funding, which in itself leverages the bankable deals and makes it possible for the trillions of dollars to deploy. That's private sector money. There are people, there are clients of those companies who own that money. They, they right now want X amount of return on investment. But if we can create deals, and we can, water facilities, uh, transportation deals, energy production, all of those things are revenue producing. And where you have revenue produced, you have an ability to go to the market and you can create the bankable deals. We've, we've talked for too many years about blended finance. What we put together for Indonesia in the jet P as it is known, by which, which brings Indonesia to the table, ready to phase out some coal, deploy renewable, uh, and it's being done with some concessionary money 
and the private sector and public money. That's blended finance. We're going to do the same thing with Mexico. We're doing the same thing, we hope, with Vietnam. And we did it with Egypt, by the way, uh, on a program called Nuefe, where we are shutting down some gas turbines and deploying about 10 gigawatts of renewables and sending the gas from the savings of the turbines closed. That gas will go to Europe to help them through the Ukraine crisis. Mm. So there are real synergies here that we can build on. The problem is it's really time consuming and we don't have the time. People have got to seize the initiative here. They need to see the model of a jet P and see mm. the model of Nuefe in Egypt and go out. I mean, if, if bankers and, and, and large asset owners ought to look at this stuff and proactively be going out there and say, we're going to put a deal together. They've got deal makers who know how to do this. And we have to accelerate this transformation by deploying that four and a half trillion dollars into uh, the transition itself. Well, many of them are listening to you now, and I hope they'll heed your words. I want to talk about your goals for COP28. And also, as we talk about COP28, there's been some controversy, and we may as well address this head on. The UAE, the host nation, has named Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, the president uh, of COP28, of the conference this year. He is also the CEO, of course, of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, uh, Adnok, um, is how do you see that sort of thing that is some would call a conflict of interest? And it, it's part of this larger issue where everyone talks about a just transition, but there is a transition involved. So when you hear criticisms of uh, Sultan Al-Jaber's role, uh, how do you view those criticisms? How do you work with him? And how do you still push towards decarbonization, which he's invested in? Well, I understand the, the skepticism. I mean, he'd be a fool not to understand the skepticism, given the track record of where we've come from uh, with respect to the industry pushing back and not yet being fully part of this transition. So people have questions. And, and in my judgment, the, the fact of being a oil and gas producing country uh, can either be a conflict of interest you've described, which some people suspect, or it could be the kick in the ass that people need to bring the industry to the table and actually get some commitments on methane and some commitments on oil and gas and more things. I mean, there are other things besides that uh, that are possible. Now, you know, I believe and I've listened carefully to every comment that uh, Dr. Sultan has made. We just were at the G7 meeting. He just gave a very strong speech at the G7 meeting, which was tougher than some of the ministers, saying we have a problem and we have to move and have to accelerate and we're behind and, and, and being serious. Now, the words, as I've said, the words from us, the words from anybody right now, are not reassuring enough to anybody in the world they want to see the action. And so the proof is going to be in the pudding here. What, what is pushed for? What does Dubai produce? And, and we already have three elements of Dubai that are pre-cooked. You have the global stock take, which everybody has agreed has got to be honest. It also it shouldn't just look at where we are in the negative. It should also look at where we are in the positive. What are the good things that are happening? We also have the loss and damage fund component we've, we've discussed a moment ago. 
Um, and, um, you know, I think that we can, as I've said, hopefully move on that. And then we have the uh, mitigation issue uh, where we, we clearly have to uh, reduce more faster than we are today. Uh, and in addition to that, we have the finance issue, which is looming enormously here. You said it, I've said it earlier this year in Davos, somebody asked me, what's the biggest single hurdle right now? And I said, money, 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 money. There are too many times that I've been asked by the president of a country for help in making the transition without developing gas infrastructure or moving into fossil. But they don't have the money or the technology to do it. And they look at you and say, can you help us with it? And the fact is that we don't have enough money to be able to do all the helping that we need to do and the transitioning that needs to take place. There was a day when the United States, we are the world's largest humanitarian donor. The United States of America is the largest humanitarian donor in the world, putting billions of dollars on the table. When Pakistan was hit by the flooding and 30 million people were affected without being asked, we instantaneously put up $100 million, boom. And that's not even enough for what we have to do. But we're going to have to know that this requires investment to make this transition. But it's not throwaway money. It creates jobs. And that's what President Biden has been focused on. It, it, the, the fastest growing job in America two years ago was wind turbine technician. The third fastest growing job was solar panel installer. And if you look at what's happening in solar and wind, it's becoming far more reliable. It's getting better storage, better battery capacity to balance. And it is cheaper than fossil fuel. By any measure, when you consider all the damage that fossil fuel, mm. unabated fossil fuel, let me be clear, unabated is a critical component of this. If you can capture 100% and do something useful with it uh, and you build the infrastructure and it's cost competitive, go for it. And that's what one of the things the IRA is, is looking at, trying to instill in people the ability to pursue any number of different solutions, small modular reactors, uh, the utilization of carbon for something, um, better mm. battery storage. Game changers are in the offing out there. And I'm convinced that uh, we're going to see we, already things are happening much faster than anybody predicted. And we need it. Uh, Secretary Kerry, we're, we're out of time. I'll just end with uh, uh, a question from Aaron David Miller, who I know you know well. He just says... Yes, I worked on Arab-Israeli negotiations for the better part of 20 years. Just wondering how you maintain your hope and optimism on combating climate change, an issue that at times seems so hopeless and pessimistic and is akin to pushing a very heavy rock up a very steep hill. I'm and sure there are many know. days I have felt like Sisyphus, for sure. <laughs> no question. I've raised that uh, analogy many times. But here's, I, I am optimistic. I'm genuinely optimistic for the simple reason that there are solutions to this challenge. The challenge is not that we're sitting here without a, you know, without a technology or without any knowledge of what has to be done. This is pretty simple stuff. It's not rocket science in terms of what the problem is. The problem is the way we have chosen to heat our homes, propel our vehicles, light our factories and homes, et cetera. That's the problem. It's greenhouse gas pollution that comes from burning fuel. And, and so 
what we need to do is make sure we're not, you know, fouling our own nest. But right now we're killing species around the world. We're changing the chemistry of the ocean more than it has been in millions of years. There's nothing sustainable about what we're doing today, even though we have sustainability officers up the gazoo and various companies around the world. We got to get more serious about making the choices that are available to us. The IEA tells us that if we just deployed renewables between now and 2030, we can meet the 45% greenhouse gas reduction necessary to keep 1.5 degrees alive. We are not just doing that. And so we see new coal coming online. We see bad practices that are getting in the way. But we do have the ability, we human beings, have the ability and the choices in front of us to make this happen. And I've been through enough history going back to, you know, the 1960s and the Vietnam War and so forth to know that when people mobilize and go out and try to get the job done, we've made unbelievable differences in all kinds of things, civil rights, human rights, women's rights, uh, the environment movement, the peace movement, and so forth. And we changed history as a result of it. And here, we just have to get more people on the right side of history. John Kerry, I can't thank you enough for the time you've spent today with us and the time doing what you do. Pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Ravi. Thank you for covering and obviously caring about this issue. And that was John Kerry, U.S. President Joe Biden's Special Envoy for Climate and America's 68th Secretary of State. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. We read everything you send in. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also see who else we have coming up on the show weeks ahead of time. I'm Ravi Agrawal. FP's editor-in-chief. I'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. 
Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.